Let's pray. Lord, you're big and you love us, and that makes us glad. Now let the words that I say and let the thoughts that we all think be pleasing for Jesus' sake. Amen. Last week I took our sweet little foster baby to get her regularly scheduled shots. She and I have developed a little bond, you know. We, she looks to my cues, I imitate her little noises, we laugh together. But those shots put that bond to the test, you know. Like, it doesn't matter what I say. I can't explain to an eight-month-old what diphtheria means and that she never has to worry about getting it because she's about to endure about 20 seconds of pain. All she knows is this guy took me here to this place where they're hurting me. There's no reasoning I can give her to make it better. All I have to offer, actually, is my face, right? All I can do is look at her in love, using my facial expressions to ask her to trust me that I won't ask you to go through anything that isn't for your ultimate good, I promise. Question. What makes us think that we are any more able to understand God's reasons for allowing us to suffer adversity than an infant is able to understand diphtheria? Like if there are things that an adult human just can't get through to an infant human because of that infant's limitations, doesn't it follow that there would be things that God just can't get through to a human being because of the human's limitations? That's a bit of what the Apostle Paul seemed to have experienced in 2 Corinthians 12. Would you turn there with me? 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Grab a Bible, Bible app. Follow along. Uh, This is our second to last week of our sermon series on the attributes of God. No one greater, we've said, since January we've been trying to figure out who God really is. Instead of just imagining him to be whatever we'd like him to be. And so we've walked through these attributes or characteristics that scripture attributes to God such that no greater being could ever exist. Today's attribute we're looking at is God's wisdom. And we did already preach on God's omniscience or perfect knowledge in one of the previous weeks. This is a bit different. Today, we reflect on God as all wise. And it might be helpful to start with a working definition of wisdom. And I like J.I. Packers here. He says, wisdom is the power to see and the inclination to choose the best and highest goal together with the surest means of attaining it. Good definition. Wisdom is the power to see and the inclination to choose. There's a moral component too. The best and highest goal together with the surest means of attaining it. An adult has the wisdom to choose the diphtheria shot over diphtheria. The infant doesn't have that wisdom. The infant won't choose pain because the infant can't see that higher goal on the other side. So then... Uh, are we meant to think about it this way, perhaps? Like, here's infant wisdom, here's adult human wisdom, and then here's God's wisdom. Like, each a greater magnitude than the one before. Is that how it works? If you've been around this, the other weeks of this series, it probably won't surprise you when I say, not exactly. Uh, the Bible talks as if God has a wisdom that's not just of a higher degree than our wisdom, but rather is categorically different. 
from our wisdom. His ways are unsearchable. He's immortal, invisible, God-only wise, as the old hymn said. Meaning that there's a sense in which his infinite wisdom is utterly one of a kind. Even as we attempt to reflect it in our own pursuit of wisdom. So to our text here today, 2 Corinthians 12. Backdrop, opponents of the Apostle Paul have attempted to poison the people of Corinth against him. Saying things like, we might imagine, hey, should, Paul be, should Paul really be so respected here? Like, yeah, he had a cool experience with God on the Damascus Road, but that was a long time ago. What makes him anything special recently, right? Isn't he kind of unimpressive? So Paul then is in the awkward position of, A, desiring strongly that his friends in Corinth don't think too much or too highly of him. But B, desiring strongly that his friends in Corinth don't get led astray by these false teachers who are attacking the credibility of his message. And he's so uncomfortable sharing the story he's about to share in the verses we're about to read that he starts out sharing it in the third person as if it's about somebody else before he realizes he's talking about himself. So let's read what Paul writes in verses 1 to 10 of 2 Corinthians 12 and see if you catch his account of God's wisdom prevailing in his experience. 2 Corinthians 12. It says, boasting is necessary. It's not profitable, but I will move on to visions and revelations of the Lord. And then he goes to describe it. He says, I know a man in Christ, speaking in the third person, who was caught up to the third heaven 14 years ago. Whether he was in the body or out of the body, I don't know. God knows. I know that this man, whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know. God knows. Was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words, which a human being is not allowed to speak. I will boast about this person, but not about myself, except of my weaknesses. For if I want to boast, I wouldn't be a fool because I would be telling the truth. But I'll spare you so that no one can credit me with something beyond what he sees in me or hears from me, especially because of the extraordinary revelations. Therefore, so that I would not exalt myself. So that I would not exalt myself. A thorn in the flesh was given to me. A messenger of Satan to torment me so that I would not exalt myself. Concerning this, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it would leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is perfected in weakness. Therefore, I will most gladly boast all the more about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may reside in me. So I take pleasure in weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and in difficulties for the sake of Christ. For when I am weak, then I am strong. In the passage that we just read, there's a threat faced, a gift given, and a reason offered. Threat faced, gift given, reason offered. We'll look at each of those in turn. First, the threat faced. So, <clears throat> there's this thorn spoken of in this passage, right? And we're going to talk a lot about that thorn this morning. But notice, from Paul's perspective, the thorn, look at it, the thorn is not the threat. Did you catch that? The thorn is not the threat. What's the threat in actuality? Well, at least with the benefit of hindsight, Paul can see what the actual threat was. The actual threat was that he would exalt himself. Verse 7. See that? That he'd get too full of himself. 
that he would become too puffed up with self-importance. Why was that a threat? Because he had had some spiritual experiences that not many people get to have. Look again at verses 2 through 4, scanning back. He has kept to himself privately until writing this. For 14 years, the memory of an experience in which he got spiritually transported beyond the first heaven, which is where birds fly, beyond the second heaven, which is where the stars shine, into the third heaven, where God's throne is. Can you imagine the intimacy with God cultivated by catching a vision of paradise and hearing things that aren't permitted to be repeated? Right, and more directly, how do you come back from that experience and then patiently sit back while Joe Smith over here asks the people of Corinth, hey, are we sure Paul knows what he's talking about? Like he kind of lacks oomph as a public speaker. While some of us have experienced some pretty amazing stuff spiritually, Paul seems to be kind of living off yesterday's grace back at that Damascus Road experience. See? Like if you're Paul, how do you hear that? And not just walk around thinking and asserting that you're better than everybody else after God has taken you up into heaven for this intense spiritual experience. And that's why, from Paul's perspective, at the time of writing 2 Corinthians 12, that was the worst danger of all. The worst of all things that could have happened to him, that he get puffed up. A thorn, it's unfortunate, annoying, inconvenient, but to start thinking of oneself more than what is appropriate, more highly than is appropriate, now we're talking about a real danger. Now we're flirting with disaster. And that raises an important question for us, doesn't it? Namely, what do we imagine would be the worst disaster we could face? To ask it a different way, how concerned are you and I with the threat that one day soon we'd start to think too highly of ourselves? Does that threat carry the same urgency for us that it did for Paul? Throughout his writings, Paul seems to be keenly aware that so much ministry good can be shipwrecked by self-exaltation, as seen so often in the Christian celebrities of our day, right? How many of us have had the experience of, oh, I've benefited so much from this particular pastor or author or speaker. I've gleaned from their work for so many years, only to watch them over time start to think of themselves as the star of God's show. It's a self-importance problem, right? Quick story. When I was in high school, uh, going through the recruiting process, I wanted to play college football. My dad was the quarterback's coach for the Detroit Lions at the time. So he's an NFL coach. He takes me on a couple of recruiting visits to colleges that were interested in me coming to play for them. And at one of these visits, the coach, one of the coaches, the college coaches, asked me, hey, so tell me, Tim, about the coach of your high school team. To which I respond, as a coach's kid, with my assessment of all my high school coaches doing well, in my opinion, and all that my high school coach, eh, decisions he's making, they're probably misguided. Next time, I was alone with my dad a few minutes later, uh, after I thought I'd given a great response to this college coach. Uh, my dad asked me, hey, Tim, <clears throat> hey, why do you think that college coach asked you about your high school coach? And I was like, I don't know, why? To which my dad explained, <clears throat> he doesn't care whether your high school coach was a good coach or not. He wanted to know if you, as an NFL coach's kid, think that you know better than your coaches. 
See, that, that college coach knew how toxic self-exaltation can be. And when my dad pointed it out in my heart, that became a powerful lesson that I've carried with me ever since. But listen, not many leaders today in any field seem to share Paul's sensitivity to the danger of self-exaltation. And part of it's on who we choose as our leaders. We keep elevating and promoting and recruiting winners, no matter how brash, no matter how prideful they are in their winning. Right? In the political arena, there are even Christians who now openly boast that they're looking for that in their elected officials. Like, don't give us somebody who apologizes. That's weakness. The more brazen, the better, because that's how you win. I've heard Christians say this. And so we end up with CEOs and governors and mayors and, God forbid, pastors for whom self-exaltation is not seen as a danger. It's their brand. And let me tell you, if not for God's grace, that would be my brand. I know it would. And if anybody who knew me in college ever tunes into this message and pulls it up online, they'll be like, what do you mean, self-exaltation? That's you, Tim. Because I know it was, and I'm scared to death about going back down that road again. Uh, I tell the elders that all the time. and That's why I know I'm not ready to travel and speak at conferences, right? I'm not ready to publish books yet. That's why I know I'm not ready to have a social media presence yet. I know that those pats on the back at this point would be toxic for me. They would go down too easy, right? They would taste too good, and I'd keep coming back for more. I just know that about myself. That's why... <clears throat> for me personally, whatever thorns come my way, so to speak, even the ones that I feel hinder me from having the ministry impact that I'd like to have, I keep reminding myself, hey, those thorns aren't the threat. The threat is what kind of self-important person I might become if I was living a life without thorns. See what I mean? The thorn then becomes a gift. That's the way Paul sees it. Let's unpack that next. Gift given is the thorn in the flesh. Here's the thorn part, verses 7 and 8. It says, therefore, so I will not exalt myself, a thorn in the flesh was given to me. There's a gift. Yet it's a messenger of Satan to torment me, so I will not exalt myself. Concerning this, I plead with the Lord three times that he leave me. So clearly Paul's using a metaphor here when he speaks of this thorn. So what's the thorn in the flesh refer to? The short answer is that we don't know. Uh, and as interesting as it may be to conjecture, and many have, we always want to be careful spending too much time asking questions that the text itself isn't interested in answering. Most scholars believe it's very likely that a thorn is some kind of recurring physical ailment, hence the flesh emphasis here, uh, a physical ailment that deters Paul from doing some of what he wants to do in ministry. It must be something that bothers him significantly because, as D.A. Carson points out, the guy who told us in the chapter before this, 2 Corinthians 11, that he has been lashed, beaten, stoned, shipwrecked, that guy isn't getting brought to the point of desperation now because of a head cold. Right? It's something bad. But the reason Paul doesn't specify what the thorn is is because his readers in Corinth already all know what it is. When they read this, they're like, oh yeah, Paul's whatever, his blindness maybe, his malaria, whatever it is. Because they know him. They know what his thorn is. We don't get that the way that they do when we read this. But I think that's the genius of the Holy Spirit's oversight of the writing of this text. Because right? if it were specified what the thorn is, 
then you know what we would do. We would act like the lessons here in 2 Corinthians 12 are only applicable to that one narrow type of condition, but maybe not applicable to mine, to what I'm going through, my thorn. In contrast, as it stands here, we can see how this thorn, so to speak, could legitimately speak to us in any number of struggles that befall us and get in the way of the hopes we had for our lives. A physical condition? Yeah, for sure. But an adult child whose life has gone astray, a toxic workplace, a difficult marriage, a personal failure. God was bringing this passage to mind for me personally over and over this week as I was working through it. Here is my week, and I share this just to communicate that this is an abstract talk for any of us, right? So um, on Tuesday night, with great horror, because this is my worst nightmare to have to make this request, I had to ask Sarah to return home from an out-of-town conference she's working at to help me with the kids, because I just I jacked up something in my neck and back to the point where I couldn't find like a sitting or laying position that wasn't in excruciating pain. I hated having to make that call, right? And then Wednesday, two of the four kids are stuck home from school sick. Sarah's supposed to be back at this conference. I need to get somebody to fix my back and neck. Thursday night, I've got a little neck relief now, but I end up having to take a kid to immediate care because he's doubled over in stomach pain. And so that was our week. And that's just the summary of our health drama, which ended up being like 20% of our family drama this week that was causing stress, right? And I, all of what I just named, right, there are several, possibly many families here this morning that I know for sure, despite all of what I just shared, that I would not trade my week with yours this past week. Mine was nothing compared to yours, so please don't hear me sharing what I just shared as some sort of woe is me. That's not it at all. I'm actually just trying to say that I know that this church family is going through some stuff. Like many of us sitting here this morning are like, Lord, if you would just take this adversity away, just think about how much more effectively I could serve you. Like, we're in this together, right? The, the thorns lodged in our flesh as a congregation are here and there and everywhere. But this question becomes super relevant to us then. Namely, who sends the thorns? If it's a gift, who sends it? One part of Paul's answer to this question is that God sent the thorn. Here in verse 7, it's what theologians would call a theological passive. A thorn in the flesh was given to me, which implies given to me by God. After all, who else had this purpose in mind that he wouldn't exalt himself? Only God had that purpose in this. following verses make it clear. Paul understands God to be ultimately behind this thorn. Yet, at the same time, Paul can call this thorn a messenger of Satan. So who sent the thorn, God or Satan? The answer, of course, is yes. Satan, the devil, the accuser, the adversary, he's the direct agent of the sending of the thorn, right? And he intends the thorn to serve a malicious purpose in Paul's life, maybe to keep him from ministry. But Paul knows that that very same thorn could never reach his flesh unless God had given Satan permission. The difference between God's agency in sending the thorn and Satan's agency in sending the thorn is that God only allows the thorn out of his concern for Paul's good, for ultimate ends that are higher than the goal of Paul's momentary comfort. 
Whereas Satan is sending the thorn out of his hatred for Paul and defiance of God, God is allowing the same thorn out of his love for Paul and his providential working out of his master plan in the long run. So let's reflect on what that means for us. Probably at this point in the sermon, most of us have started thinking about at least one particular thorn we're experiencing at the moment that we really wish would go away. Here's the question. Have you accepted the dual sending of that thorn? Meaning that yes, in all likelihood, there is an enemy behind that thorn who wants nothing more than to use that thorn to tear you down. Yet, there's also a God who has every intention of using that very same thorn to bring about good and positive outcomes in your life. Have you been conceptualizing it that way? It's like Job, right, in the Old Testament. Whom Satan attacked with tragedy and grief and loss and pain and disease, but only with God's permission. And so when Job's wife tells him to curse God, he doesn't say, no, God wasn't the one who did this to us, it was Satan. What's he say? He says, hey, should we accept good from God and not trouble, disaster? Joseph, right, same way. Evil forces intend our pain to harm us. God uses that same pain to bring about the greatest good in our lives and in the lives of others. Until we can come to a place of accepting that dual agency behind our thorns, it's hard to imagine how we'll ever be able to say with Paul what he says in verses 9 and 10, I will boast in this. I take pleasure in it. Are you serious, Paul? You're telling me that it's possible that we could take pleasure in things like weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and difficulties? And the answer is yes. Not because we turn into masochists, but because we learn to embrace it. Okay, if God brought about this horrible adversity and thought it was a good idea, if he at least permitted it, right, then there must be an opportunity here for a really good outcome to be brought about in my life in the long term. What kind of a good outcome? Well, that brings us to our final point. God's ultimate goals. The reason that God offers. Remember J.I. Packer's definition of wisdom that we opened with. Wisdom is the power to see and the inclination to choose the best and highest goal together with the surest means of attaining it. Now look at how Packer elaborates on this definition so helpfully. It's a little bit of a longer quote. He says, but, despite the fact this is what wisdom is, we can't recognize God's wisdom unless we know the end for which he is working. And here many go wrong. They think that God intends a trouble-free life for all, irrespective of their moral and spiritual state, and hence they conclude that anything painful and upsetting indicates either that God's wisdom or power or both have broken down or that God, after all, doesn't exist. But this idea of God's intention is a complete mistake. God's wisdom is not and never was pledged to keep a fallen world happy or to make ungodliness comfortable. See that? Once we accept that God's goal is not to make us happy and comfortable, then the thorns that he allows into our lives cease to be category busters that leave us bewildered as though something strange were happening to us. Now the thorns become what we expect to an extent, right? After all, isn't this what Jesus told us our lives would be like if we follow him? Matthew 10, right? You're going to get handed over to the courts 
you're going to be beaten, you're going to be betrayed, you're going to be hated. Endure it all to the end and you'll be saved. So what exactly are we surprised by? Why do we feel so wronged that our lives have ended up being hard? What justification do we have? And I'm speaking to myself first and foremost here. What justification do we have for bitterness? He told us what this was going to be. We want God's highest goal to be making our lives comfortable. But he's not interested in our input in the matter of what his goals should be. He's just not, right? He's got different goals he's working toward. And what are those goals specifically? Well, we need to note here in our text that even Paul doesn't seem to fully know. Job didn't fully know, right? Even after his prolonged multiple chapter conversation with God at the end of the book of Job, Job was never even told the basics of what you and I know as readers from chapters 1 and 2 about what happened in heaven that led to Job's adversity. Job doesn't even get that. He knows now that he's in heaven with God, but he didn't know fully while he was here on earth. So we should expect that we won't always know all the ultimate goals God is working toward while we're right in the thick of the pain of our thorns. That said, haven't many of us had some version of this experience at some point, right? Thorn comes into our life. Why in the world would God ever allow this thorn? Years later, oh, now I can see at least one good thing that came out of that thorn that never would have happened otherwise. Who's had an experience like that? Some version of it. Most of us have, right? Don't we sometimes get some sort of limited insight over time when we look back? Can't we at least sometimes see a little of the outer edges of what God was doing in hindsight? And I think that's how we should think of what Paul gets here in this passage, right? What he's originally told by Jesus in verse 9 my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is perfected in weakness. That's Jesus' response to Paul's prayers. That didn't answer all the questions that Paul probably had. Right? Like if Jesus said this to me, I'd say, my grace is sufficient for you. Like, in what way, Jesus? Tell me more. Right? My power is perfected in weakness. Well, Jesus, how will this play out in my particular situation? Even a direct verbal response from Jesus himself, which is what Paul gets, what we often don't get, leaves, still leaves for significant mystery regarding God's hidden purposes in allowing this thorn. But, in a general sense, over time anyway, Paul's able to reflect on these words from Jesus and see, oh, okay, here's how God tends to want to operate. By demonstrating his strength through weak people. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Paul says some version of that in many of his letters and seems to have been born out of this experience. For when I am weak, then I'm strong. Right? And not just through weak people does God choose to work, but through people who know they're weak. Who boast in that weakness because they're not ashamed about it. So this thorn then becomes something that reminds Paul of his human weakness. And as such, it presents an opportunity to put God's power on display in a way that wouldn't have been possible if it was, well, big, strong, invincible Paul who's so good at everything. No, no, no. When it's Paul with bad eyesight, who's a good writer but seems kind of meek and unimpressive in public speaking, now, when God's power bursts forth through Paul, 
There's no confusion about it, whose power it was. God's going to get the glory now, because it's clear to everyone that the power wasn't Paul's. Paul's weak. It couldn't have been his. It must have been God's, right? So God, demonstrating power through weakness. Could God be working toward other variations of this goal in our lives, other goals altogether? Sure. Like maybe he'll allow you to go through hardship because he has in mind a particular person that he wants you to be able to empathize with and comfort years in the future. Maybe he'll allow you to go through hardship because there's someone who doesn't yet know Jesus who's going to find Jesus attractive once they see you walk through your trial faithfully without bitterness. Maybe he'll allow you to go through hardship because he just wants you to experience an intimacy with him that you'd frankly never pursue if you weren't in a state of desperate need. No matter what he's doing, we can be confident that, Romans 8, 28, he's working for our ultimate good and for his ultimate glory, which are his two ultimate ends. So our big idea today is this. Because God alone is wise, let's trust him, even when he allows us to experience adversity. Because God alone is wise, not just more wise than us, because he is wisdom personified. Let us trust him, even when he allows us to experience adversity. See, as we struggle through this life riddled by thorns we are the infants getting shots that we can't possibly understand right and as we scramble and we we scramble and we scramble for answers but god so often prefers to give us something better than answers namely his face doesn't he not hey here are three reasons why i allowed you to go through this but rather here i am do you trust me that I'm wise? In other words, the older Christians in our lives were onto something when they would say, hey, I don't know the answers, but I know the one who has the answers. And just like for a baby on a doctor's table, knowing a parent is infinitely better and more helpful than it would be to know immunization theory. Similarly, for us, knowing God is infinitely better and more helpful than it would be to know the reasons for our pain. So, does that mean that we shouldn't pray for God to remove our thorns? No, we do pray for their removal. Right? There's no rebuke in this text, right? There's no indication that Paul was wrong to pray these three prayers for his trial to end, for God to remove the thorns. Sometimes God answers such prayers by granting relief from the thorn. He does sometimes do that. And so we are, even this morning, we're going to provide some time to come up and pray right after this. Right? I'm going to ask the elders personally to pray over my back and neck, I'll tell you right now. I'm, I hope you'll come up for prayer too, but when we come up for prayer, let's come up not as we would come to a vending machine, but rather with this heart attitude. I'm going to plead with God for relief, but if he doesn't bring relief, I'm going to trust that he's wise and he's working toward higher purposes than my own. Anyone's welcome, by the way, to come up for prayer during a time of instrumental music and continuing into our last song. One final word, though. For the person who's here this morning, who maybe hasn't yet entered into a relationship with this all-wise God. Here's my question. Don't you want your life 
to be in the hands of someone much more discerning than you and I are about what are the best goals to pursue? I mean, look back on your life. In hindsight, haven't there been so many facepalm moments in which you can see now that you were pursuing the exact wrong goals in the exact wrong ways? I know I've had those, many, many of them. And guess what? 20 years from now, we're going to feel the same thing about the ways that we're inclined toward, the goals that we're in, inclined toward today when we look back on today. Right? But there's a better way to entrust ourselves to the all-wise one and to his ultimate goals for our life. Right? After all, he demonstrated his wisdom most supremely in the journey that led to this cross. Centuries in advance, he intricately set in motion this plan of salvation, working out step after step, dropping hint after hint until it came to his glorious completion at the cross 2,000 years ago. How many, how many stood at the foot of the cross that day as Jesus died, saying, hmm, look at God's wisdom? None, right? On that day, it looked like a senseless tragedy at best. To others, it looked like good riddance. Yet in hindsight, we would one day be given eyes to see the thousands of layers of the wise plan that was being fulfilled here in that moment of culmination that there on the cross was the sacrificial lamb being slain. That there on the cross was the scapegoat being sent away into the wilderness. The wood was the ark that would save us from the flood. That tree was where the curse of Adam and Eve's tree would be undone. The hill where Jesus died was the hill where the firstborn son would be sacrificed in obedience to God. There it all was. Every page of the Bible leading up to this moment, pointing forward to what God in his wisdom had always planned to do there. In such a way that it seemed wise to approximately 0.0% of the people who were there to see it. All so that, because of what he did there, and by raising Jesus from the dead three days later, he could one day send Jesus back, as he one day will, to consummate the new age in which all of our thorns, all of them, will be in the rearview mirror. If your heart feels drawn to that sort of all-wise God, it's because he's drawing you. He's got ultimate purposes for your life that make your plans look laughably small in comparison. Won't you submit to his wise lordship? Let's pray. God, we want that. We're so stubborn, man. God, I just want, I think I have such good plans for my life such good ideas about how my life should go and I want to cling to those and I have such a hard time letting them go when it seems that you've got something different when you interject a thorn into the mix but God I want to be somebody and we want to be a congregation corporately who trusts you uh, even when we can't understand what you're doing at the cross we couldn't see what you were doing a creation we couldn't see. At no step in the journey has it been clear to us what you were doing. Yet, in hindsight, we can see the beauty and wisdom of the plan. And so we want to trust you now with our present, with our today, even when we don't understand why. 
shape us in our hearts such that we do trust you. In Jesus' name, amen.